This episode is going to be me talking. It may well be that you don't get to the end of it. So I want to just let you know something. At the end of it, I'll be asking people to visit my website, www.themaltedmuse.com, because there is something happening on that. It's to do with my whiskey, The Home Calling, and it's significant about the price and the structure of that. It has changed. So please visit the website and have a look at that, even if you don't get to the end of this podcast. Hello, and thank you for downloading this episode of the Malted Muse podcast. Now, regular listeners will be aware of the fact that I've released a whiskey under the Malted Muse label. Now, since I first mentioned doing that, I have been asked a few times um, questions about the experience, about the story behind it, how I did it. And I suppose in a way that if somebody else other than me had done that, I would be thinking, well, if I get a chance to talk to them about it, that would make an interesting thing to talk about. And as I'm the one who's done it, well, maybe it would be interesting for people to hear about the experience I've had in doing it. Some of that has already been said on my my other podcast series, Whiskey Selection. And I'm going to try to keep repetition to the minimum. This episode is is a, for want of a better word, a behind-the-scenes story. The podcast extras, if you will. This episode is the story of how I did it, rather than, than some of the aspects of why I did it. Now, some of the names that I will use will be changed in this episode, because I think that naming people would be wrong to do without their permission and I don't have the permission of of everybody and also some people wouldn't want to be named because of various reasons. Now it's a strange world at the moment. There's a mix of recession and also of sales booms making an interesting contrast to say the least. Ireland, for example, faces huge economic problems whilst its whisky industry is hitting new heights of growth. Increased wisdom amongst drinkers have led to a greater demand of the mature stock and increased competition for space on the marketplace shelves. For some strange reason, I chose that environment to try and launch the whisky. What was it that possessed me? The life of a distillery manager is a really very easy life. You sleep in until about 11 o'clock in the morning. Then you walk downstairs to the still room where you can play with the stills for a bit. Around 2 o'clock in the afternoon, their beautiful wives walk in, bring with them a hot home-baked pie made from the deer stalked by their handsome but obedient grown-up son who spends his day learning the right way of doing things from his respected father. The rest of the day is spent trying sample after sample with whisky ambassadors, reading letters of praise from consumers and fending off the taxman who actually wants to give them a rebate. Okay, obviously it's not quite like that, but it's a nice fantasy. The problem is, I'm a whiskey lover, but I've got no experience of working in the industry, not since working as a wine waiter and then behind the bar when I was back in my teens. I know that the life of a distillery manager is actually very different from that. It's full of hard work. It's full of meeting deadlines. It's it's full of pressure and stress and all manner of other things. I'm sure there's a lot of joy in it from what I've heard from people talking about it, but it's not that fantasy that it's so easy for people like me to imagine that it is. I wanted to get some insight into the industry. I wanted to take a peek behind the fantasy. 
I felt that I needed that for my own education, but also to have some understanding that would help me when I'm talking to people in the industry. And I have to say that this experience has certainly done that. And this episode is about sharing some of that with you. So I wanted to learn about the industry, but in a realistic way. I wanted a good product and I wanted it to be fully legal. I also set myself the restriction of not undercutting existing labels. I wanted to be fair. I was to find out that that aspect of it would not be a problem. In fact, the opposite. My problem was actually going to be to try to keep the cost down. But we'll talk more on that later. I also wanted a product that ticked other boxes, that allowed me to explore other issues. And there's more about that on the Whiskey Selection podcast. I also needed to make enough money to fund the podcast and the venture itself. Now to achieve this, I was aware that I needed help, and lots of it. After all, my training, my career has been in child, adolescent and family therapy and psychiatric nursing. And it does not give one a foundation for business. I am from the old school National Health Service in which quality of care and patient need outweighed consumer trend or sales targets. I've got a degree in fine art and that was to be of little help in what I was about to do with whiskey. And although I am now self-employed, my gardening business is far removed from that of the whiskey industry. The question for me initially was where to get help from. Now in the UK, there's a free service, Business Link, that gives consultation and advice. So I booked an appointment to talk over my plans. In the meantime, I identified two other people to be on hand for advice. The first was Adrian Murray of the Wee Dram in Bakewell. Why not? He's got a successful whiskey shop, he runs events, he's a keeper of the quake, he seems ideal and he was local. The other one was head of and founder of Compass Box Whiskey, John Glazer. Now he's got experience of starting from scratch, starting his own business. And I was sure he would have good advice if... He was willing to give it to me. Going back to the business link, the meeting at business link, it went well. Although, to be honest, logically, I had already identified all the advice I was given. I was told of a number of resources that could prove useful. In reality, those resources funneled down to actually one resource. One that you actually had to pay for and actually wasn't quite what I needed. I wasn't developing a recipe or aiming at a new invention. Nor was I looking at a big scale operation or one that was going to be housed purely locally. Adrian, however, was to give me some sound practical advice. And he was to become a really good sounding board for me and actually still is. One thing I like about Adrian is he's blunt and he's honest. He comes straight to the point, but at the same time, he's open, he's accessible and he's friendly. Adrian has possibly helped me much more than he realised and it's been more of an influence than his first apparent. And I thank him for that. I thank him for that deeply. John Glazer's contribution was actually to surprise me. He surprised me, first of all, by actually even agreeing to talk to me. This is a man at the head of a forward-thinking, cutting-edge company, and he's being contacted by a stranger with a new, non-profit podcast who's asking for help, and he wants that help for free. He's never met me before. There's no reason why he should agree to help me. He's clearly very busy, but he does. He, he says any time, just phone up. So that's what I did. Now, I only bothered John once, but it was interesting, it was helpful, and it was inspiring. Everything that John said has been true and relevant. But sadly, 
even though I recorded part of the conversation for the podcast, it actually remains the only recording so far with so many technical problems that I've not been able to rescue it and I've not been able to share it with you. I learned a lot from it. Now, one of the main things John said was work out how much it's going to cost and how long it's going to take and then double them both, at least double them both. He was so right. The real cost in time and money is much higher than I first identified. Another main issue he raised was distribution. Consider this at the start as it is essential. No matter how big you are, you have to consider every single route of sale. Now, I'm paraphrasing a little bit then, but again, what he said to me was so right. And it was a lesson that I was to learn even more so later on. Now, along the way, there have been others who have helped, but I'm going to refer to them as we go along. I had the advice, I had the motivation, all I needed was the money and the whiskey, the bottle, the labels, the packaging, the distribution, the legal requirements and much, much more. But I knew what I wanted to do and I knew how I wanted to do it and I knew why I wanted to do it. And as far as I was concerned, at that point, that was a good grounding to move on from. I'd read some stuff about whiskey bands, about people like John Buchanan. Now, they all had their different approaches to it. It seemed to me that John Buchanan's approach was to stand back, to study for a bit, to weigh things up, and then when he was ready, to make his move. I felt to a degree that's what I needed to do. I thought about doing the venture for some time and then when I was sure that I wanted to do it I made my move. I wasn't as prepared as I thought I was going to be. Never mind all that, none of that would make any sense at all without the whiskey itself. Now finding the right whiskey was to be interesting. When I first started talking about the project, Peter Mackay from the Scottish Liqueur Centre had said, selling whisky makes you look at it in a different way. He was right. I knew why I was doing this, but I must confess to starting to think about choosing a whisky in a way that I hadn't first anticipated. I had an idea that I, what I wanted to do, but at then, the moment I started looking for the whiskey, I started to think about other aspects. Maybe what I need to do is find a very popular whiskey, a whiskey that would just be really easy to sell. I had to remind myself that I wasn't doing this just to sell whiskey. It was going to be more than that. The whiskey had to be a certain type of whiskey. Other types of whiskey might come along later. It had to be a special whiskey for a special purpose. And I had to remind myself of that. So I pulled back and I wrote a plan to stick to. Now, as I started to source whiskey, I hit problems. Distilleries clearly had commitments to provide for others. Big contracts were not to be put aside for my little project. New spirit was available, but requires maturation. I did not have the time for that or the money to be able to tie it up for 10 years or more. Some also put down restrictions on how it could be labelled afterwards and what you could actually do with it. And that wasn't any good to me either. Now, it had to be mature stock, but mature stock is in demand and I was hitting problems trying to get hold of it. Now, through doing the podcast, I had made some contacts and I was at that point of not being afraid of stretching those contacts out to my own advantage. I started making contact with my contacts who then put me on to other people who put me on to other people and following this chain of suggested contacts I ended up speaking to Mr A from a well-known company. Now Mr A was yet another one of those people who made the whiskey industry what it is. A busy man with responsibility who gives up his time to talk to me, a stranger 
with no gain in it for himself in any way. Mr A explained to me how to get hold of a cask of whisky. Not only that, but who to approach, how to approach them, and how the whole pricing structure works. Duty, bonding, delivery, price by litre of alcohol, factors of alcohol lost by age, and the relevance of that to quality and cost, and so much more. He also put me into contact again with other people that again were to prove really useful. It was a long chat with me on my mobile in the car frantically writing down notes. It felt that I was an explorer with half an ancient map and Mr A not only gave me the other half of the map, he also translated it for me. And again he did so just out of kindness. So, Mr A's advice led to Mr B, to Mr C and Mr D, and eventually I came across Mr E. Now, by this time, I had firmed up my ideal whisky. Tobermory had really made an impact on me, and I had read how the distillery manager, Ian Macmillan, favoured a 15-year-old. Now, if I could try a cask of that, it could be the one. I could be tempted by others, and I was eager to look out for certain other ones as well. I really fancied buying a cask of Lafrague, for example. But Mr E had a Tobermory, and it was 14 years old, with a birthday very, very soon. Now, I had rejected casks from other sources for many reasons. One being, I wanted to be sure of its source and of its quality. What Mr E was offering ticked all the boxes. A well-known, established company of high quality with a cask of exactly what I wanted. If I could taste it and afford it, maybe we could begin. I was sent a sample and I sat down to taste it. Never before had I been so serious about tasting a whisky. I tried it at cask strength and I wrote notes. I tried it with water and I wrote notes. I took ages doing it and then I left it a couple of days and tried a bit more, this time neat and quickly and I wrote notes. I tried it in a variety of ways. This was not just tasting, this was a complete road test. I wanted to push this whisky and see how flexible it was. If I was going to invest in this, it had to be right and it had to be good. Right from the start, I decided that it was high quality or it was nothing at all. The same principle had applied when I worked in the NHS. I was then working with people and their most intimate problems. I was working with young, vulnerable and troubled minds. People's futures depended on the quality of my care. It had to be right. It's a good guiding principle. This whiskey, it stood up to the test. Did it have what I was looking for? Yes, it did. And it had more on top as well. There was no doubt in my mind. If I was going to do this, then this was the one to do it with. Cost, however, was an issue. I'd set my standards high, but with it came a high cost. I had also set myself the target of a budget. Now reading the whisky history books had revealed some trends to me. One of those was the importance of not spending what you can't afford. Now this is not a guaranteed industry. The world faces recession. Not a time to risk a large loan. So I set a limit. But that limit would only buy one-third of the cask. Mr E was okay with that, but it left him with the remainder. But it also meant that my bottling would not be exclusive. And that bothered me. There were discussions in my home, and many sums were worked out. Many calculations were done. For me, this was the chance of doing something special or just selling a few bottles of whiskey. At the last minute, the decision was made. 
It was to be the cask, the whole cask. I shook with excitement. This was the insight I was looking for. This was what I needed to learn. It was not only the process, it was the emotional response. It was the joy, the excitement, but also the risk and the uncertainty, the anxiety. I'd never done anything like this before and suddenly I was investing an awful lot of money into this venture. What followed was many sleepless nights. Now I could read about how to do a job, but actually doing it is different. As a student nurse, I'd been taught how to give intramuscular injections. I'd even had it demonstrated, but not on a human being. When it came to doing it for the first time myself on a living, anxious, individual person, it was a completely different experience. Doing it on someone in the throes of a full-blown psychotic outburst whilst two other staff struggled to restrain them was a different experience again. I had complete faith in this whiskey that I had chosen, but John Glaze's words rung in my ear. Work out your budget, then double it. I had tripled it and still had a long way to go, with lots of obstacles I had not at that point foreseen. Finding the whiskey was an important but individual part of the process. It was just one part of the process. I could not sell it in plastic bags. I needed something to actually put the whiskey in. Here, my arts training kicked in. With no manager overlooking me, I was able to design some fantastic, hand-blown, handcrafted bottles. But is it as simple as that? Of course, there's the cost. The more individual, the greater the cost. Then there's the safety aspect. The bottle had to be good for the job. It could not leak toxic compounds into the whiskey and it could not be prone to breaking. It also had to be suitable in other ways. See, it's easy to get carried away with a sketch pad and your imagination. And I've seen bottles of vastly varied shapes from the perfect sphere to the perfect cube to the pyramid as well. I've also seen bottles that were far more memorable than the whiskey itself, and I didn't want that. I decided to keep it simple and classic. A straightforward bottle in a simple tube. They both gave a clear, simple statement. This is whiskey. Look at what is inside. Focus on that, because you know what it is. I also felt that I was new to this. I didn't have the experience to guarantee being able to get it right first time, nor the resources to get it wrong, or to produce something like, like the Highland Park 50-year-old bottle, which I find breathtakingly, brilliantly beautiful. Now, I decided to keep things simple. Now, having decided that, and knowing what I wanted to get, I still had to find it. Night after night of searching suppliers and costings were to become a feature in my life. The same thing was to happen with the label as well. The reality is that small companies cannot be as competitive as the larger ones. They had to charge me more. The larger companies, well, they're geared to larger orders. And to, to them, I'm just an inconvenience. So therefore, they often will try to charge more and in reality, price you out the market. I actually got a, one company made me a really good offer of very cheap labels. And I mean very cheap labels. Belongs, I ordered in quantities of 500,000. I wasn't really going to do that. The difference between the cost of label printing from the cheapest one that I found to the most expensive one that I found for my little job lot was £4,750. That's the price difference between the two. Or oh, it really does pay to shop around. <laughs> <laughs>
And there's a similar story with the bottles and the tubes. Many companies were not interested and didn't return calls. Others were over keen and sent samples that actually weren't relevant to what I want. There was one company with the printing of the labels who I sent my designs to, as I did with all of them, and they then reformatted it so it was compatible with their system. They emailed that back to me, and all without me asking them to do so. And then they charged me a large amount for their costs. I didn't take up their offer of printing for me, but they still wanted me to pay that charge. I'd done the design. I had only asked for a guideline price. And I had explained that it was only an initial inquiry. I did not pay. And I was told that they wanted to see my final label. Because if it resembled the label in their email, they would take the matter further. Now this, for once, was where my arts degree came in useful. Because I know about intellectual property and I know a bit about copyright law. They could say this. But actually, it was the other way round. I could prove without doubt that it was all my design and I had done it before I had contacted them and that they were basically out of order. Now, I am actually a naturally timid man. I hate complaining and I often fail to do so. But I was not going to pay someone else for my own work, get nothing from it, when I had not asked them, and all they had done is basically copy it. They backed down, they looked at their records, they acknowledged I was right, and no more was said. And I'm not going to name the company either, because to be honest, it was a mistake. We all make mistakes, and I don't hold that against them. However, I had contacted loads of printers, tube suppliers, bottlers etc and this was the only company that reacted like that i am self-employed i have a large family i also do the podcast which takes up a lot of time i was having to fit all this in during small pockets of time and this hiccup took over a week out of that process as well as leaving me thinking that this could be the sign of more problems like this to come there was more problems to come, but in very different ways. As well as bottles and tubes and labels, in the sense of getting them, there was also the aspect of label design. This included logo design. Again, my arts training helped, but again, I was on my own to a large degree. I could not afford to pay a designer but I could not risk getting it wrong. The label could either help sell the whiskey or it could end up getting me prosecuted by trading standards. Once more, I was having to trawl through research. There are so many regulations about labelling, especially when it comes to food substances, and all of it is hidden under piles of EEC speak. None of it is easy to find. The Portman Group seemed to be very helpful, as did page after page of government publication. In the end, it was Mr E who helped the most. Repeatedly, he would look at my designs and give comments, right down to where an apostrophe went. On the label, <clears throat> I'm not going to say whereabouts it is, because I don't want to lead too much attention to it, but... On the label, there is an apostrophe that some people say should be in a different place or shouldn't even be there. This little spot of ink on the paper caused me quite a few nights' work looking at grammar forums, tracking back months' worth of academics discussing the very point of it itself, going right back to how the grammar had evolved how it had related to context, how there was a difference in grammar and design. See, one of the issues was that the most grammatically correct way of writing it made it look awkward. That awkwardness distracted from the product. So, 
should I go with the easiest to read version, even though it is grammatically wrong? But then again, I didn't want to get the email saying that, but that doesn't make sense. This was just a dot. Now, in the end, I made the decision, and that was that. The label was designed. I was happy. I wanted the label to have texture. It did. I wanted it to have subtlety. It did. I wanted it to have all the information that the enthusiast would want. It did. I wanted a skeleton plate that could be reused for later bottlings. It did. And I wanted it to look good and classy. And it did. And I also wanted it to be completely legal. And it was. The logo on the label also had to be designed. And I wanted something with meaning, but also beauty, whilst not being complicated. Again, hours turned to days, turned to weeks. This was very important. I wanted a logo that would last and could be reused in many forms. Now, my wife was brilliant. She's my greatest critic. She would not get in the way of the process of making it, of designing it, but she would frustrate me intensely. I would put everything I had into into designing a logo, get to the point of being happy with it, I'd show it to her, and she would simply say, no, I would try again. What's wrong with it? It's not right, she would say. And I would be pulling my hair out. But the reality is, it forced me to push myself more and more. Eventually, I came up with the swan. My wife's family's name has a link with the story of the children of Lear, children who were turned to swans. The swan is also an old symbol of the poet, and I felt that related well to the aspect of the muse. So I had an aspect of my wife's history, her family, and also of the muse. I was pleased with that. I also like the Celtic knot that's called the trichetra, the three-cornered knot. It's an everlasting, eternal line made up of three components. Now, whiskey, as you know, has got three ingredients, grain, yeast, water. So a trichetra with a swan would be ideal. It all came together. I agreed the printers and arranged the labelling to be done. The whisky was bottled, labelled and delivered and I was happy with it. My wife took one look at it and noticed straight away a printing error. On the podcast title, the apostrophe had appeared as symbols. After all the fuss about an apostrophe on the label, there was a mistake involving two other apostrophes. What to do about it? I considered it. I considered shipping the whiskey back, getting the labels reprinted, taking them off the off the bottles, putting new labels on and shipping them back to me. No, too difficult, too much cost, too much inconvenience. I just got an insert sheet printed to go into the tube. It's not perfect, but all the information is there. And somehow it's become part of the process. See, early in doing this podcast series, I'd mentioned how a distillery had a label that had got a mistake on it, which had been corrected by pen, and how much I liked that because it showed that individual touch to it. And I felt, in a, in a way, this was doing that as well, that I was in a similar position. Cardboard boxes, they might not be the most interesting of subjects, but they became very important to me. I knew I would need to be able to send whiskey by post and could not risk breakages. The boring subject of packaging was to dominate my life for a while. Do a search for bottle boxes on the internet and you'll either get very expensive wooden crates or very thin, not appropriate, carrying bags. I needed something that was cheap, 
strong, as green as I could, and also available. The process of searching began, as it had with the bottle, the label, and the tubes. This time, however, market research could be a bit more fun. You see, it's easy to buy whiskey online. Companies like Master of Malt, Royal Mile, The Whiskey Shop, many more, they sell whiskey all the time. So how do they deliver it? Well, the easiest way to find out is to buy some. So that's what I did. A series of individual bottles were bought, and I studied and compared how they arrived. There is a number of issues that I was looking at. The size of the package. Did it have to be overly big? The level of protection that it offered. The contents. Were they safe? The ease of use. Was it easy enough to get into? And was getting into it a nice experience? And was it eco-friendly? Did it look like it was going to hurt the planet? Now I compared them all. Noted it all down in detail. Ease of use became more important than I had expected. The experience of wading through polystyrene chunks, then picking them all up off the floor, and then fitting a bin with them, actually started that whisky experience off to a bad start, compared to simply just unwrapping the bottle. Likewise, the disappointment at finding a dent in the tube was a bit like a chip in a cup. You could still use it, but somehow or other... It wasn't quite the same. But I had to be careful of cost. I could not compete with bulk orders. And as friendly as it is, the whisky industry is also competitive. I had to do everything tailor-made and small batch. And this was making it expensive. But I also needed and I also wanted it all to be quality. My one saving was that I was free. I did not have to pay myself for the time I was putting in. If I had, then the outcome would be a retail price of about £1,000 per bottle. The amount of time that this was taking was absolutely immense. And it was going to get much worse. But... I had the whiskey, I had the bottle, I had the label, I had the tubes, I had the packaging. What else did I need? To sell the whiskey, I needed a point of distribution. I could advertise using the podcast and by using social media. And that's okay, because I've only got one cask to sell. I don't need a massive advertising campaign. But I needed a point of sale. I could look to selling to retailers. But they've got limited shelf space. Demands are from suppliers and their own profit margins. I know. I looked into it in a number of ways. And a number of times. I could open up my own shop. Now during this process the Lincoln Whiskey Shop came up for sale. And I visited it. I seriously considered it. I went through their accounts. But distance and timing were not quite right. And sadly, I had to back away from that venture. The simplest solution seemed to be the internet. See, it's easy to sell online. With the right hosting package, you can set up an e-shop with just a couple of clicks. Well, that's what they say. But not in the real world, you can't and not with whiskey. The number of options of hosters, of packages, etc. seems endless, and they all had to be considered in fine detail. You need security, you need tech support, you need simplicity, you need trustability. And I was not putting all this effort in to degrade it by trying to throw the product out into eBay. And Amazon won't let you sell spirits. Now I'm not going to bore you with all the tech problems I've faced, but there were many. It's not apparent that these simple clicks also have two weeks to a month of assessments in between them. 
or that copies of documentation and detailed business plans need to be submitted. What looks like one company actually becomes two companies and that they then require a third company and then a fourth company with a fifth one on the side. I wanted an e-shop. I needed to have a hoster, a card payment processor, a number of anti-fraud protectors, a merchant bank and a business bank. And of course, they all want paying. And all just for my one product. Now on top of this, they all need password protection and separate logins. And they also all need to be able to relate to each other. They all also need to be set up by a simple man in his 50s who just wanted to sell whiskey. So when the wrong passwords get sent and the wrong IP addresses are attached, when you don't even know what they are or where they are or what they should be, and online help sends you in circles, it becomes one of the most annoying things that there is. It is not just the financial cost. It is the emotional strain. It is your family asking you to sit with them whilst you explain that you've just got to do this one small thing and then it'll be ready to go, only to find that three months, four months, five months later, you are still saying the same things whilst all that money and effort is tied up. Despite some help being given, this was the most desperate, depressing and lonely part of the experience. It still is. If I had one regret, it was the tech side. What should be so simple became so hard. What was to be a quick actually put the brakes on and stopped everything for months and with it went a lot of goodwill. This was my dream. The internet was turning it into my family's nightmare. No wonder they offer free introductory periods. It took longer than those just to sort out the problems. But I managed it and the first sale came through. After some false starts and after a series of test runs that I had to do. The first sale was actually from my oldest son who wanted to support me. And I felt touched by this. But I wasn't going to accept that sale. I'd already actually bought a bottle for him anyway. Plus I knew he was going to come up and visit me soon. So charging him for delivery was crazy. I explained this to him. He understood. I refunded him the money. But the action of refunding him the money caused an unbalance in the flow of monies within the accounts and that caused more problems. Why couldn't it just be simple? It took me another six weeks to sort that one problem out. On top of this, there were other things that needed doing. Terms and conditions delivery rates, returns policy, privacy policies and more. They all had to be sorted out and again, I was on my own doing those things. But I had the whiskey, I had the website, I had internet shopping etc set up. What else did I need? Well, I needed to be legal. There are some aspects that were relatively easy for me. Being self-employed, the issue of tax could be easily integrated. Well, relatively so. The structure for my doing self-assessment tax was already there and I knew how to do it. Other aspects related to tax, such as duty payment to take the whiskey out of bond, was actually surprisingly simple. But... If I was to sell the whisky to the public, I came under another range of restrictions. You cannot just sell whisky. You need to meet legal requirements, and I needed to find out all about them. I am a one-man band, so all the legal aspects fall onto me. I cannot simply employ someone who's got a personal license and rent a place with a premises license. 
I had to get those things myself. And legally, that required me to get some training. And none of it is free or quick, apart from the training, if you go to the right place. You see, if you find the right course, you can actually do it in under a day basically being taught how to pass the exam in the morning and passing the exam in the afternoon. For me, that was not enough. I wanted to learn, so I found a longer course to do. I phoned up, I spoke to tutors, I read reviews about companies who ran the courses until I found the right course provider so that I could learn properly about the subject. Other students on the course, however, only wanted to pass the exam. So I don't think my endless questions made me a very popular student. I wanted to sell a few bottles of whiskey online. But there's not an awful lot about that on these courses, or if it comes to that, in the regulations. I had to do the same training an exam as I would do as if I was running a massive nightclub in the centre of a city. Having done the exam and paid for it, I had to wait for the result. After the results came through, and by the way, my score showed a 100% pass rate, not one question wrong, I could then apply to a company in Scotland for a CRB check, criminal records check. And then for my personal license. Once that had come through and had been paid for, I could then apply for a premises license. The premises license was interesting. My home needed to become licensed. Why? Because where the whiskey is stored is not actually that relevant. Where my website is, is not really relevant, it's somewhere in the internet. But the point of sale is, the fact that I take an order online from my home and then leave my home to go to the post office to sell it, to post it, makes the house the point of sale. My home would have to undergo the same scrutiny as a town centre pub. So, I had to outline issues of public nuisance, policies of underage drinking, fire safety, trading standards, opening times, um, music and much more. It came to a small book of paperwork that had to include scaled floor plans of my home. And I had to have copy after copy of this all sent to different departments in different parts of Derbyshire. I also had to display on the correct coloured card and on the correct size font and in the correct wording two signs that had to be put outside of my house for around about a month before I could even proceed with that. I think, in all honesty, I must have used a whole ream of paper just in that application itself. I also needed to put a public notice into a local newspaper. It was a small notice. It only went in once, and I'm sure that no one read it. But that one small public notice cost me £200. And I'll be honest, I still think of that as being theft. Once more, I had to wait. And then I was informed that there was an objection to my application. One department had a problem with it. I will be honest, I was anticipating the fire department having a problem with it. But no, it wasn't them. See, it's illegal to sell alcohol to a minor, to somebody who's underage. The penalty is the loss of your licence, a £5,000 fine and possibly imprisonment. Now, having worked with children, I was aware of other reasons as well why not to do it. I didn't want to sell to underage people. In a pub, one can look at the customer, talk to them, ask them for ID, make an informed decision about their age. But internet sales are different. They're blind and a big problem. 
I was a small setup with limited resources, and I feel to a degree an example was being made, which I can understand and don't really have a problem with. The suggestion was that, in effect, I would have to hand deliver each bottle, do checks on the customer at the point of actually delivery, and if I wasn't happy at that point, not hand the whiskey over. I mean, technically, it didn't have to be me, but in reality, I could not afford to pay someone else to do it, so it would have to be me. Now, I understand the need, but I regularly find whiskey left at my door or in my greenhouse. I was, in effect, having to face higher levels of control than the big companies did. The web hoster that I used, I'll be honest, wasn't much help. Their advice either set the age limit too low so that I could actually filter out anybody who was 14 years or younger well that wasn't relevant to me or it closed the whole site down so that only registered customers could actually view any part of the site after a lot of creative thinking on my behalf I made a suggested alternative to the web hoster who then said oh yes well yeah you could do that that would work more time had passed by but I had found a solution to that small part of it. I contacted the department that made the objection and I explained my position, my concerns, and I came up with alternatives which they accepted. They withdrew their objection, but because they had objected, my application had to go to committee. All this time and investment could suddenly have been wasted, but it wasn't. The premises license was approved and I was legally allowed to ask my youngest daughter for proof of ID before she could go into one of the rooms in her own home. It was more stress, more time, more cost, but one more obstacle out the way. A couple of months later, before I had actually started to sell, I was called at work. Luckily, I was near my home and was able to pop back. A man from the council was doing an on-the-spot inspection. He needed to go through my application, check all was being done and that all was, all was right. I was told that this would happen again, and without warning, at some point, and at some point they would employ an underage person to try to illegally buy from my website. If I failed that test... Then, loss of licence, £5,000 fine and or prison. He was a nice man, but I returned to work, having to remind myself why I had started this project in the first place. It did shake me up. It did bring more stress into my home that, I'll be honest, I didn't really want. Now, my account of all this makes it sound very linear, very ordered. The reality is different. Many things happened all at the same time and things overlapped. But here I was, stopped, enabled and legal. Time to sell. But how much for? And what if it doesn't sell? And this again was not easy. I had to ask myself, what costs would be fair to include in the price per bottle. What would be a reasonable degree of markup? How would the rate of sale affect it? More advice was sought and a formula evolved. Some expenses I could include, some I'd have to cover myself. The whiskey, for example, that I bought as part of my research into packaging, that would be for me to pay for. The cost of labelling could go on the price of the bottle. That was quite simple. But I needed to put a reasonable markup on the bottle. I sought advice as what percentage of markup people would use and what would be a reasonable amount to put on there. And that's what I did. Now, I needed to make money to pay for the podcast's future. And if I chose to move it on to other retailers, I needed to be able to drop the sell-on price so that they could put a margin back on again without 
me either losing money or them coming up with a product that was actually more expensive than I was selling it on the internet, if that makes sense. But the price per bottle also changes the amount paid per transaction. And that gets passed along through the internet structure. It needed careful tuning, but also needed to be a reasonable price. I did not want to be over the top. I could not afford to lose money. It had already cost me much, much more than I had anticipated. Now that near enough brings things up to date. I'm still learning. The lessons still come, as do the problems, but also the pleasures. The non-whisky side, the internet, the legal issues, I'll be honest, they nearly stopped me. When I look back with all honesty, had I known those problems were to happen, I may not have done it. But I have learnt a lot. I have gained insight into the knowledge, the process, but also the emotive range of the industry. I have had moments of excitement and weeks of sleeplessness. On top of this, I have a whisky with my label on it, a dream come true. And what is more, it is a great whisky. It is one I can fully believe in. It's everything that I wanted to have in that whisky. And that whisky has been the one constant throughout the whole experience. I am now to try and learn another lesson, another experiment, and one I hope you will all help me with. Rate of sale is very important. The setup costs money on a monthly basis. If I sell only one bottle a month, then all those costs bear down on that one bottle. If I sell a hundred bottles in a month, each bottle only needs to bear one hundredth of those costs. Now, if I anticipate slow sales, I have to figure that aspect in by putting the price up. Putting the price up also, in turn, slows sales. What I'm going to do now is the opposite. For a limited time, I'm going to factor in a very high rate of sale and drop the price tremendously. Now this is a risk, as if the rate of sale is slow, then I end up losing money. If the rate of sale increases to match the price, I cover the costs, more people enjoy the experience, and I can start looking at possibly buying another cask and moving the experience on. It is a risk and the price difference is extreme. So please help me. If you don't want to buy a bottle, or even if you do, please spread the news quickly. I can't hold this price for long, and no one else, I think, is going to be able to match it. I've done my research, and the new price is lower than its closest equivalent, despite having a higher ABV. The home calling is 57.1% ABV. In addition to that, I have been unhappy with the way that delivery charges are calculated on the website, so I've set them all to zero, which means that the bottle price now includes delivery, or free delivery, whichever way you want to think of it. See, I've got strange feelings about this whiskey. Let me try to explain. I can remember telling one of my children that I wasn't proud of them. I had no right to feel pride for what they had done. They hadn't done anything wrong, quite the opposite. But I didn't feel that I should feel the pride about it. I felt they should feel proud because they had been the ones that had done it. What I felt was not pride. It was different. I felt honoured and privileged to be part of their lives. But the credit, well, that was theirs. Now, I feel a similar way about this whisky. I didn't make this whisky, so I cannot feel pride for doing so. Others can and others should, because it's a great whisky. But it's not for me to feel that pride. 
All I've done is actually supported it during its transition from the cask to the wide world. And for that, I feel honoured and privileged. Now, as I said before, spread the news. I've brought this price right down. I can't bring it down any lower. I can't keep it down for very long. But it's a very, very competitive price. I've done some research. I've had a look around. There may be a cheaper Tobermory 15-year-old car strength out there. I can't find one. If you have tried it already, please let me know what you think of it. So far, I've only heard good things about it, but I'm interested to hear about all opinions. Also, I would like to remind people that they can support the podcast in another way, through donations that can be made through my website, or by giving positive reviews on iTunes, as I know some of you have already done, and I thank you for that. I'm also wanting to say that I'm not doing this primarily to make money. Obviously, I do want to make some money. I need to make some money to cover the costs. That's what that is mainly to do with. But I'm also doing this to learn. I'm not a hard-nosed businessman. In fact, far from it. I'm too soft a lot of the time. I want to be fair to people. I want the price of this whiskey to be fair to be relevant. I want it to be accessible. I want people to be able to experience this whiskey. I have been sent a picture via Twitter from the Absolute Peach and I thank them for it. The picture was a photograph of a glass of whiskey, a Glenkinchy 12 year old. And they wanted to know if I knew of that whiskey because they just tried it and they really liked it. Yes, I do know of that whiskey. I think it was 2009. I'm sorry for saying I think it was because it was my 25th wedding anniversary. We went for a night away at a really nice hotel, small hotel that specialised in champagne. And whilst my wife was enjoying the champagne, I was enjoying some single malts. And one that really stood out was the Glenkinchy 10-year-old, which I believe has now been replaced or is being replaced by the 12-year-old. I may be wrong on that. The Edinburgh Malt, a lovely whisky. Um, I find quite a light whisky with a floral nature and a little hint of spice. I picked up a little bit of ginger in it. A lowland, but one that can actually hold its own as well. One that is despite its light subtleties, is still full-bodied and and noteworthy. So thank you for sending me that picture. It's a real treat seeing it. And I will be honest, I took one look at it and my mouth watered. So thank you for that. Well, as I've said many a time, this is a selfish podcast that I do. It's selfish because I I do it through my own interest in whiskey, my own passion for whiskey. But that's not to say that it's only a selfish podcast, because I do like to think other people get something from it as well. And that does happen, not only through appreciation of whiskey but something that happens occasionally is when people listen to the podcast and it it spurs them on to do something or they make contacts with other people through it and that is brilliant i don't tell everybody about it all the time but i do get emails coming in telling me about how people have met at a whiskey festival or how somebody's going to have a meeting with somebody else and that seems to have come from listening to the podcast that's brilliant now i'm going to tell you about one of the emails i've had it's come in literally today i'm about to put out this podcast episode um so i haven't got time to do any fancy editing or anything like that hence i'm recording this on a little handheld system um but bill ricker frequent listener often gets in contact with me people who listened to Mark Gillespie's Whiskey Cast will know this from one of his episodes, but Bill was a friend of Michael Pedlipsky, 
And Michael Padlipsky was not only instrumental in aspects of, of the internet, the formation of it, but was also a whiskey collector, connoisseur, and um, notator, I suppose, be one way of putting it. He built up um, a whole range of whiskey notes and a whiskey collection. Back in the days w before people like myself or before uh, internet bloggers were doing so it is a really important vital record of whiskey tasting but also of whiskey bottling now sadly michael padlipsky died uh, not that long ago and bill inherited I suppose is the way to say it, the collection and the notes, and has taken on the responsibility of, of archiving that. Now, I'm, I feel so pleased that Bill, listening to the podcast, was then spurred on to make contact with Pete from a couple of episodes ago from the Whiskey um, Design Awards in the Netherlands made contact with him and the email I got today was basically saying that some of those bottles from Michael Pedlipsky's um, collection, the photographs of some of the older, the more perhaps unusual, rarer bottles can now be seen on Peter's website so that is really good news I've had a look myself already. I couldn't resist doing that. It really does look interesting. And even though I'm only a small part of that little system that's gone on there, I feel so happy that that's happened. And uh, I hope people will visit it. I hope people will get as much enjoyment from looking at it as I have. And I also have to say, Bill, well done. That's It's really good work. I really appreciate what you're doing there. The other thing is, I don't know whether Bill wants me to say this or not, but I did notice at the bottom of his email there was a little mention about some health issues of his own. I haven't the foggiest what those are. Could be just a cold, I don't know. Whatever they are, Bill, I hope you get well soon. Look after yourself, and thanks for the work that you've done. Well, thank you again for listening to this episode of the More to Muse podcast. If you haven't heard them already, there is a back catalogue of other episodes available on iTunes. And if anybody wants to contact me, they can do so. My email address is jim at com. There's the website www.themaltedmuse.com and there's also Twitter at twitter at themaltedmuse. So thank you again for listening. I hope you'll listen next week. And until then, thank you and goodbye.